Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. If you've got uh, a digital Bible on your phone or on an iPad or something, you can open up to Luke's Gospel, the first chapter. If you've got a paper Bible, turn back to Luke's Gospel, the first chapter. It will also be on the screen, uh, so you'll be able to follow along. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, toward the end of the chapter. But before we get there, I want to introduce what I'm going to be talking about. We're kicking off our Christmas series right now, our Advent series. And we're, we're entitling this series, Light in the Darkness. We feel like that's a really, really appropriate theme for the year that we live in, right? Light in the darkness. And today's message is the morning light is breaking upon us. And what I want to share with you today that is that the morning light that I'm going to be speaking about is Jesus himself. When Jesus broke on the scene of human history... It was as though the sun was rising over a very, very long night, and we were beholding the dawn, and the dawn was the breaking of the light upon a dark world, and that dark world was Jesus Christ. And I want to show you Jesus today and his birth, and I'm going to take you down a road that has to do with the birth of Jesus. It's going to be a little bit different than what you're used to. We're not just going to talk about babies in mangers and, you know, shepherds and wise men, and you know, animals around, and a, a mother and a father welcoming in a new baby. All of those images are beautiful, but we can often look at them in a very sentimental way. We, we can embrace them like, ah, oh, that's a cute story, but we don't recognize that that story was actually God acting on the human race and on creation itself, and it was actually a violent act of God to begin to reverse the curse and break the power of darkness. It was God saying, I am moving in on human history, and I'm going to change this long reign of darkness, and I'm going to come myself and intervene with my arm, with my arm of strength. And so uh, we're going to look at Jesus today, and we're going to look at his birth in a new way. We're going to look at the prophetic announcement of his birth, and I'm hoping you're going to get encouraged. I also have a movie clip I want to show you in a little bit that I think will encourage you. So Jesus, the great one. Jesus, the light of the world. Jesus, the great philosopher. You know, it's been said that Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato for 50, Aristotle for 40, and Jesus only taught for three. Yet the influence of Jesus' three-year ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by a combined 130 years of teaching from these men who were among the greatest philosophers of the ancient world. Jesus painted no pictures, yet some of the finest paintings of Raphael, Michelangelo, and Leonardo da Vinci received their inspiration from him. Jesus wrote no poetry, but Dante, Milton, and scores of the world's greatest poets were inspired by him. Jesus composed no music. Still, Haydn, Handel, Beethoven, Bach, and Mendelssohn reached their highest perfection of melody in the hymns, the symphonies, and the oratories they composed in his praise. Every sphere of human greatness has been enriched by this humble carpenter of Nazareth named Jesus. Jesus stands at the top of human history. 
He is head and shoulders above every other figure in human history. Head and shoulders above the Buddha. Head and shoulders above Muhammad. Head and shoulders above all the great figures, all the great warriors, the Alexander the Greats, all the conquerors. He is head and shoulders, and yet he only lived 33 years. He only had a public ministry of three and a half years. But his impact is like taking the pebble and throwing it in the pond, and the ripples go on and on and on. In fact, I'm standing here today. You're sitting here today. Many of you in this room are here because you have been radically rocked, radically ruined, radically changed by Jesus of Nazareth. He made himself real to you. He broke in on your life. Maybe some of you were were rescued from addiction. Maybe you were caught in your intellectual idolatry. You thought you really had life figured out and you, you, you thought you were pretty smart and had it together and he broke in on your life. Some of you, he just rescued you out of a shattered background of abuse and pain and he lifted you up and you were forgiven and loved and redeemed and he gave you hope he gave you a future. Jesus is still working on planet earth miraculously. He's still changing lives. He's still ruining us from the bad stuff and bringing us toward the good stuff. He's still doing what he's always done and there's nobody that holds a candle to him. Amen. As we get into the Christmas season, this is a season that the traditional churches, the mainline churches have called Advent. Advent means the arrival or the coming of Jesus. And typically during this time of the year, what we do is we look back on his first coming. We consider his ongoing coming to us by the agency of the Holy Spirit and the good news of the gospel and its work in the world. And we look forward to his second coming when he will land on the scene of human history once for all and he'll abolish evil once for all. And so we look with a yearning toward that. We look with a great sense of thank you, God, for what you did in the past. We celebrate the fact that he's with us right now through the agency of the Holy Spirit, but we look to the day when he's going to finally put his last enemy under his feet. That is death. Amen? And that's what, that's what Advent is. But today what we're going to do is we're going to look at this prophecy about John the Baptist and about Jesus that was delivered through John the Baptist's father. So let me give you a little bit of background. Early in Luke chapter 1, we hear the story of how the angel Gabriel came to and visited a Jewish priest named Zechariah. Zechariah was married to a woman named Elizabeth, and they were really good people. In fact, the scripture goes on to say that they were righteous people. They were upright people. They were people who followed the laws of God. We learned that earlier in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. And the angel comes to them and says, listen, now, now let me just say this about them. They were, they were old enough to where they couldn't have children anymore. In fact, if you look at the text, it says they were very old and unable to have children. They'd never had children. And so they had you know, come through this season of life where they were never able to have a baby, and I'm sure their hearts were broken about that, and they, they walked through all the pain of that. But now they'd come to a season in their life where they were going on with their purpose in God, and he's serving in the temple, and an angel comes and visits him, and that angel speaks to him, and the angel says, you and your wife are going to have a baby. And he's like, <laughs> have you seen my wife? <laughs> have you seen me? How does that happen, right? And... And the angel speaks to him and said, because you didn't believe me, I'm going to shut your mouth. And for nine months, you're not going to talk. 
So throughout the pregnancy, sure enough, he, he, he gets done with his temple service. He goes home. He and his wife are intimate. They conceive a baby. And then during that entire time that the baby is growing in her womb, he can't talk. The angel literally makes him mute. So at the end of that time, or, or I should say even before that, uh, about six months later, a, an angel also comes to marry a young virgin woman and says, you're going to have a baby. And this baby's going to be the Messiah. And this baby's literally going to save the world, save creation. And Mary says, be it unto me according to your word. And she becomes impregnated by the Holy Spirit in a miraculous pregnancy. Not through the normal ways that women get pregnant, right? But through a miraculous pregnancy, she conceives Jesus. And so one day, Mary goes to visit her relative, Elizabeth. And right when she comes into Elizabeth's presence... Elizabeth at this time is six months pregnant, and right when she comes into Elizabeth's presence, the baby, who is John the Baptist, in her belly, leaps for joy, literally leaps when Mary comes carrying the Messiah. I'll tell you what, if you ever want an argument for the reality of the fact that that baby in the womb is a legitimate life, and nobody has a right to snuff out that life. That is a beautiful text of Scripture because we see that the baby in the womb even has the ability to experience joy and knows, isn't it interesting, that baby knew who Jesus was, right? And so there's this encounter. And then right after that, you know, a few months later, John is born through Elizabeth, and they are getting ready to dedicate John, and, and his father, Zechariah, his mouth finally opens, and, and they ask both the mom and the dad, what's the name of the baby? Expecting him to name the baby Zechariah like his father. And they say, no, his name is John. And then Zechariah the father breaks out in a prophecy. And this prophecy is a powerful, powerful prophecy over his own son and even over Jesus and what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he will do. Okay, so we're going to look at that prophecy and then we're going to focus on two verses, verse 78 and 79 in that text. So... That was a long introduction, but here we go. You ready? We're going to have to move fast. So I had a lot of caffeine, so I'll be able to move fast. So you move with me, okay? And every once in a while, somebody can throw me an amen or a good word or something like that, and it will encourage me, and I'll do even better. All right, yeah. Okay, verse 67 of chapter 1. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he gave this prophecy. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of His servant David, just as He promised through His holy prophets long ago. Now we will all be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering His sacred covenant, the covenant He swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We've been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear, in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, my little son, he's holding you, imagine he's holding John, and you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. And then verse 78 and 79 is what I want you to look at, because these are my key texts for today's message. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And to guide us to the path of peace. John grew up and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry to Israel. So that theme text, I want you to look at it again, verse 78 
and 79. Look at it with me. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide us to the path of peace. Amen. How many of you appreciate the reading of God's Word? Okay, let's break this down. And I want you to look at these two verses because I want us to understand the motivation and the heart of God toward us. The first words are, because of God's tender mercy. I want to look at the words, because of God. Because of God. Everything that follows these words finds its source in God's motivation and desire. Because of God shows us that God is active in saving humanity. You see, religion, the world's religions, outside of the good news, are all about human effort to attain either enlightenment or to do enough good works or keep the rules well enough to make our way to God. And so all other religions are built around the idea that we have to attain in order to reach divinity. And of course, we know the human dilemma. None of us are good enough to get there, right? We can't do enough. But the gospel is built around the idea that God moves to us. He takes action toward us. He initiates, he sustains, and he completes. The gospel is not about you be better, people, be good, and maybe God will let you come in. The gospel is you're not good enough ever. You are hopelessly lost, helplessly lost, and I love you, and I don't want you to perish, so I'm going to take action, and I'm going to move toward you, and I'm going to intervene in your life, and I'm going to save you, and look how I'm going to do it. I'm going to embody myself in a human body, and I'm going to step down into the human experience to rescue you. That's powerful. That's unique. There's no other story like it. So because of God, what does it tell us? God cares. God cares about you. You might say, well, you know, God's got a lot to do. The world's pretty messed up, right? There's all these world leaders. They need help right now. Uh, there, there's, there's a mess. There's this COVID thing, and there's the election, and all these things are going on, right? And, and uh, God cares about that stuff. He cares about big shots, but he doesn't care about someone like me. But isn't it ironic that when God wanted to visit planet Earth and become a man, the way he did it was he found a young virgin girl in a, in a kind of backwater place who nobody knew, and he decided that she would be the womb that would carry the Savior of the world. You see, God cares about you. He knows you by name. He knows the number of hairs on your head. As I jokingly say, for some of us, that's a lot more than others, right? He knows you. He cares about you. And he moves to you. And that's the beauty of the gospel. See, Jesus, if you've ever wanted to know, what is God like? Look at Jesus. Jesus is God's response to the human condition. We're lost. We're hopeless. We're broken. We're sinful. What does God do? I'm going to come down here and become one of you. 
I'm going to take on your life. I'm going to suffer what you suffer. I'm going to experience rejection like you've experienced rejection and poverty and pain and sorrow. And ultimately, I'm going to be crucified by an unjust political system, an unjust religious system working hand in hand is going to kill me. And in doing so, I'm going to bear the sins of the world and make it possible for you to be right with your Father and your God. That's God taking action. Amen? Because of God. Secondly, what his tender mercies. Did you catch those words? Because of God's tender mercies. I love this. When you begin to dig into these words, they're profound. The word tender is a Greek word which literally means your guts. Isn't that interesting? Your bowels. Everything in here. The inside stuff. You see, what's profound to me is science is just now realizing that our guts have a brain. Did you know that? They do. Our biome. Do you know about that? You understand that, that our, our belly, the things that are all in here, I know some of you are tripping out on what I'm saying right now. Stay with me. Okay? There's actually the reason that when we go through emotional things, when we go through pain and loss and stress and angry, that kids will say, I have a, my, my tummy's upset. I want to stay home from school today. The reason we experience anxiety and it hits us here is because there's a lot more going on here. And in the ancient Hebrew mindset, there was, yes, there was the mind, there was also the heart and the innards, right? The guts, where you're moved inside. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Where you experience, you experience like, have you ever felt deeply and it actually hurt you in here, right? You experience pain. You experience great joy, and what, you know, you fall in love, and what do you get? You say you got butterflies in your belly. It's because everything in here is telling us something about ourselves, right? It's where we experience emotion. Well, when the scripture speaks of this word tender, it speaks of a word that is tender affection, compassion, deep care, love, and mercy in your guts. It's like, it's what you feel in your guts down deep. And so what this is saying is that because of God's literally inward guts, his heart, his compassion, his love, he was moved deeply within. See, God is an emotional being. He's not just a giant brain in the sky. He is both the, the greatest mind and the greatest heart. He's full love, mercy. And it goes on to say because of his tender inner Tender mercies, that's kindness, compassion, goodwill toward the miserable and the afflicted combined with the desire and ability to help them and relieve their suffering. What's it saying? See, God isn't just the God, you know, you know the difference between pity and mercy? Pity is you look at someone who's suffering, right? You look at them. Maybe they're suffering because of their own decisions. Maybe they're suffering because they are the victim of someone else. But you look at them, right, and you see that they're hurt and you see that they're suffering and you go, man, that's terrible. Gosh, that's terrible. I feel so bad for them. But then you go on. But mercy says, that's terrible. I feel so bad for them. What can I do to take action? And this word, tender mercies, is God taking action because he's moved deep within. He loves his creation, and he takes action to rescue them, to save them. 1 John 4, 8, and 16 says this. They proclaim that God is love. Right? Love has many elements to it. 
But right here we see that God was moved deeply within his being to take action to redeem humanity and creation by sending his son Jesus. God was moved with tender mercies to bring relief and intervention to those suffering from sin and death. That's why John 3.16, even though it's such a simple verse, it's so powerful. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? God so loved, what did he do? He took action. I love the world. I, I, I hate what sin and death has done to my creation, to my people, to the imago Dei, my image bearers. I hate what I see, the marring death sinful effect of sin, and so I'm going to take action, and I'm going to give my own son. I'm going to give my best. I'm not just giving an angel. I'm not giving a good man. I am literally my son. The second person of the Trinity is going to come to earth as a human being and be born as a baby who's dependent on other human beings in order that I may enact a divine invasion and rescue the human race, but not just the human race, all of creation. That is the power of the gospel. And then what's it say? The morn, Because of God's tender mercies, the morning light of heaven is about to break upon us. The rising of the sun from the east. This text speaks of the idea the morning light of heaven is the sun's rising in the east. This term was a metaphor of God intervening as the sun rises to bring light, to bring salvation, to bring healing, to bring victory. The dawn will come. And rescue and salvation will come with it. Amen? Jesus is the morning light of heaven. His birth was a new dawn in human history. We see this in Malachi 4.2, an Old Testament prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. Look what it says. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. What's it saying? When God decides to step down into the human dilemma and to act, when the Messiah comes to do Messiah-ing things, to rescue humanity and save us, it'll be like the sun rising after a long, dark night. That's what happened when Jesus came on the scene. He is the morning light of heaven. And then what's it say? The morning light of heaven is about to break upon us. See, the birth of Jesus was that breaking upon humanity, upon history, upon time, upon the needy. I'm a Lord of the Rings fan. Anybody else a Lord of the Rings fan in here? Okay, so I love the movies, I love the books. If you know anything about J.R.R. Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien was a very devout Roman Catholic man who loved Jesus, who understood the gospel. He did not write those books as um, to be allegories, but if you, if you listen to his interviews on the Lord of the Rings um, trilogy, on The Hobbit, what he did say is, I didn't write them as an allegory, but every part of them drips with my worldview as a follower of Jesus Christ. So when he wrote them, all of the characters, all of it is a picture of good and evil, the clash. In fact, if you don't know much about the background, he wrote a history book called The Silmarillion, and The Silmarillion gives the, what he calls his creation account. And in the creation account, there's God. He's called Iluvatar, and he has his angels, and he creates all the world. And then there's one of the angels goes bad, and he starts to make a dissonant sound, and he falls, and there's judgment. All of those things exist within Tolkien's world. Okay, so the Lord of the Rings series really was a picture of different Christ figures conquering evil, good overcoming evil. And there's a scene 
in the second movie where Gandalf and his, and his armies, his horsemen, are about to break on the scene and invade right when it looks like darkness is going to win the day. And if you know anything about what this text is saying, that's exactly what it's saying. So I want to show you the clip. It's about three and a half minutes long. So if we could cue that and show that. Watch this clip. It captures it. Right out with me. Right out and meet them. For death and glory. For Rohan. For your people. The sun is rising. Look to my rising. coming at first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. Yes. Yes. The horn of Helm Hammerhand shall sound in the deep one last time. Yes! This be the hour when we draw swords together. Fell deeds awake. Now for wrath, now for ruin, and the red dawn! So, 
that section captures, believe it or not, you're going to be looking at me like, okay, how does that work with the birth of Jesus? But if you listen to the text, the next part goes on to say, is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. And that's exactly the idea. When Jesus was born and came on the human scene, the world lay under darkness and it looked as though darkness was going to win the day. And if you see what was happening, the invading forces were breaking through. They broke through into the city and they looked like they'd won the day. But on the light of the fifth day, and if you know anything about biblical symbolism, I don't want to get too weird here, but five is the number of grace. And on the light of the fifth day from the east at the rising of the sun came Gandalf and his horses, right? Well, uh, Jesus comes to us. He comes to our world and brings light in the midst of the darkness. And that's what he did to those sitting in darkness. And these words, sitting in darkness, combined to paint a powerful image. The idea is that people were sitting, dwelling, and living in obscurity, darkness, ignorance, blindness, immorality, and godlessness. And the darkness of addiction in our time, abuse, anger, lust, violence, rejection, and every other darkness we've ever engaged in or been the victim of will be overcome by Jesus the light. When Jesus was born, it was like the sun rose on the world that had been in a perpetual nighttime with very little starlight or very little moonlight at all. Light represents illumination, enlightenment, understanding, knowledge, insight, and revelation. It's like God came on the scene in Jesus, exposed himself to the world and said, here I am in mystery. Here I am in a baby. He invaded the world to overcome darkness and those who sit in the shadow of death. The shadow of death is the same thing as the darkness, but it's really the cause of the darkness. Death came into our world through sin, and the human race has been dwelling in the darkness of the shadow of death ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Jesus is the light that dispels the darkness of sin and death. He's come to break upon us with his light and his love. Amen? And then it goes on to say, What's he do? What's the end game? To guide us. You see, the idea in God's victory in Christ isn't perpetual war. The idea is conquering war to bring us and guide us into the path of peace. And that's how the text ends. It ends ends with these words, to guide us to the path of peace. To guide us, the Greek word there means the the birth of Jesus would provide a new kind of guidance for the human race. Jesus would not only rescue us from sin, but he would become the pattern of true humanity. He's the word made human. He's God in a bod. I've always loved that. God in a body. He would model for us the way of a human in right relationship with God as their father. His teaching in life would become the mold that God would now shape us into. If you want to know why you were created, you weren't just created so that you could work a job and, you know, go to bed at night, work a job, go to bed at night, and work a job, go to bed at night, have a little family, have a few kids, and then die. You were created by God to shine forth the image and the character and the likeness of God in Jesus Christ. And when God redeems us, he doesn't just save us so we'll go to heaven when we die. That is true. That will happen. But he saves us so that we might become like his son. And the idea is over time as we get closer to Jesus and we look on him and we become more intimate with him, he shapes us and forms us internally in our character so that we act more and more like he is. Right? Are you still with me? I'm almost done. Hang on. We're coming in for a landing. We might circle the airport a few times, but we will land this plane, I promise you. And and then it goes on to say, he will guide us to the path of peace. This word path means a highway, 
a traveled road, a course of conduct, a journey toward a desirable destination. Jesus came to guide us on the true path toward God and one another. He himself is the way. He said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, many times we get so caught up. You know, Christians go through this all the time. I've gone through it too. But God, guide me, lead me. Show me specifically what you want me to do. Show me what job you want me to work, work at. Who you want me to marry, Lord. What I'm supposed to wear this morning when I get up. I know that gets a little weird, but I've actually known Christians who've done that. Um, but anyway, you know, we want specific. And yet, the key is, if we'll embrace the way, if we'll embrace the one who is the path, and we begin to look upon him and love him and get to know him, the specifics work themselves out as we embrace knowing the way, and the way is a person. And so if you want to know what God's will for your life is, I can tell you right now exactly what his will is. Here's his will, that you know Jesus Christ. And if you get intimate with Jesus and you get up close to him and you get to know him, and you get to know him from the scripture, know him in prayer, know him through your brothers and sisters in community, know him through his creation, as you get to know him and you become intimate with him, he will begin to guide your life down the specific path that he's created for you. We get it backwards. We want specifics, and we want God to bless it. So we're like, show me what you want me to do with everything in detail, God. But, um, and, and Lord, bless what I want to do. Bless what I want to do. And God's saying, no, bring yourself in alignment. Get to know me. Make the number one goal in pursuit of your life that you might know him. And as you get to know him, the specifics will begin to fall into place. I know that sounds simple, but it's true. People that have walked with God for a long time and know him intimately right now, I, I mean, uh, those of you that have walked with the Lord for a long time, is that true or not? Is, it true? is that true? It's true, huh? I mean, come on. Okay, so I'm almost done. Here we go. Final word. He guides them in the path of peace. The path or the highway will lead us to Christ-likeness and true peace. The inner yearning that we all long for to be at peace with ourselves, our loved ones, Our world and God himself is the path that the birth of Jesus sets us on. You see, there's a word in the Hebrew, shalom. The Greek word, erene, is similar. And it speaks of this idea of inner wholeness. This idea of everything else in life coming into alignment and union. And this idea of shalom isn't just, you know, ah, I'm at peace I'm home from my job, I turned on the TV, and now I'm at peace. And yet, inner, you know, inwardly, things are not right. The idea of shalom is you align with God, and in your knowing of God, and in your embracing of Him, and getting to know Him, understanding I'm forgiven, I'm loved, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm in the family, I don't have to earn it, it's already been paid for by Christ, I am at peace with God, and now I can begin to work out what it means to be at peace with people. I can begin to work out those relationships. I can embrace what God's plan for those relationships is instead of trying to manipulate and trying to control others and form them and shape them into what I want them to be, I can begin to trust God to do in their life what's necessary, right? That's the idea of peace. How many of you want some peace in your life? Okay, I'll give you one quick thing. Get off social media or cut it way back. That's a good way to have some peace in your life, amen. So this is why Jesus coming on the scene changed everything because he came to make war against darkness with his own life so that we can walk in the path of peace. 
And the path of peace begins with us being right with God. And that happens through his birth, his life, his death on a Roman cross, his burial, his resurrection from the dead. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. He's won it all. He's done it all. He's the greatest ever. He stands head and shoulders above every other figure in, in, in human history. And he died because he loved us. And he rose again to conquer death. And he invites us to share that with him. Not just once when we say, yes, Jesus, I believe in you. But every day of our life, he invites us to walk with him and embrace him. Because he's the light that's dawned in the darkness. Amen? Why don't you stand with me?